Hello folks, welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event, this event today takes place on the land of the Blackfoot people and the Métis Nation of, of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship to the land. SACPA commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways past and present injustices can be reconciled. <coughs> SACPA is very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Today we are very welcome to introduce our speaker Dr. Paul Parks. Thank you for joining us today uh, Dr. Parks. From 2006 to present, Dr. Parks has been actively involved in provincial and national emergency department overcrowding, advocating for important access initiatives and changes. Since 2009, he has been advocating provincially for the open and unfettered ability for physicians to advocate on behalf of their patients and was actively involved in the government initiative initiated Health Quality Council of Alberta Review, which concluded in 2012. This review stated unequivocally that both access block and physician intimidation were and still are significant issues in the healthcare delivery within Alberta. Dr. Park's advocacy has been honored with the Allen Drummond Advocacy Award in 2011 and the Public Interest Award in 2014. Dr. Paul Parks currently an emergency physician at the Medicine Hat Regional Hospital and is the president of the section of emergency medicine for Alberta Medical Association and is presently also the clinical lecturer at the University of Calgary in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Family Medicine. He was the trauma team lead and clinical lecturer at the University of Alberta in emergency medicine as well. Paul is an emergency medicine examiner with the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and is an emergency clinical network member with Alberta Health Services. In recognition of his teaching and res resident membership, Dr. P Parks received the University of Calgary Clinic Clinical Teaching Award, the Canadian Emergency Medical Teacher of the Year in, 20, in 2007, as well as Outstanding Clinical Teacher of Medical Students from the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I very much look forward, and I think we all do, we look forward to your presentation. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, well, that was a fairly long introduction. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't aware that I was going to get the whole introduction so I'll, I can do a nutshell for everybody that uh, all that kind of just means that I'm, uh, I'm an emerge physician who works in the trenches in the hospitals. Uh, in, I've worked across the province so I know what all of the um, eMERGE departments and hospitals are looking like across the department, across the province. Um, I do wear a lot of different hats so right off the get-go I should just make it very very clear that what I'm uh, talking about here today is my own personal opinion I'm not officially representing anybody uh, although I am speaking on behalf of my specialty and um, you know I'm, I'm very connected with all of the physicians across the 
the the province that are working in the different uh, emergency departments at different hospitals. So I'm I'm some of what I say is sharing their experiences as well. But it just to be very clear, um, yeah, I'm just kind of trying to talk about access block from what it looks like from an emerge physicians perspective in the trenches and uh you know we're in emerge um in, he, we we see the we see the sins of the whole entire system and we see that where the system isn't working and so you know just to start off to get your attention uh we're really worried in the emerge departments that the system is broken and that we're in desperate desperate state right now and so the talk that um I want to make sure I leave lots of time for questions and but the talk that I'm going to talk about is specifically around access block and so what what it's really important just to even discuss what that means right what does access block mean and and just to start off it's it's kind of a catch-all term for saying you know when access is working properly in the healthcare system that means you, you have the right person in the right place at the right time and and you know that sounds simple and it sounds like we should obviously be doing that all the time uh but uh, of course there's a whole bunch of challenges and there's there are a whole bunch of uh bottlenecks and there's a whole bunch of um places in the system that aren't working that access block occurs and what that ends up meaning is that you've got a patient but they're not able to get the right care in the right place at the right time and there's tons of examples of how that's happened throughout the system and where the bottlenecks are in the system. Um, but one of the reasons that emergency medicine, you often will hear us quite vocally advocating for the system, not necessarily getting out there and saying, hey, we need more emergency departments. We need this and this for eMERGE. It's a lot of times you'll hear us out there as a big example saying, hey, we desperately need primary care. We desperately need uh, Albertans to have access to family doctors and to preventative care and and why are the eMERGE doctors out there the ones that are often vocal about that is because as I said we 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 kind of own the sins of the system where where access isn't working so one obvious example if patients can't get uh, Albertans and patients can't get access to a primary care physician then you know if they have options of walk-in that's awesome but a lot of times that's not even a Unnecessarily an option, so they end up in the emergency departments. And 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 to be very clear, we're not. You know, there's discussions about should the patient be in the emergency department? Is that is that right? Like, is it appropriate that someone gets their blood pressure taken care of in the emergency department or not? That that's kind of a moot discussion when that's the only place that a lot of Albertans can access care. And and in emergency, we are kind of jack of all trades, so we can kind of deal with a little bit of everything. Um, but but that doesn't mean that that's necessarily the best place for it. So I'll be the first person to tell you, you know, doing routine primary care and, and doing uh, continuity of care and doing the, the preventative stuff, that the eMERGE is not the right place. You, you won't see me every time you come in. You won't have that continuity of care, uh, but, but we're a stopgap when you need it. But what are other examples that I'm seeing daily now in, in all the departments across the province? We're now seeing in eMERGE, uh, you know, failures in access to palliative care, for example, and patients that need end-of-life care and palliative care often have to present to busy, overcrowded, chaotic, crazy emergency departments to get end-of-life care, and, and that's happening more and more. And, and, and again, I'll be the first person to tell you that that's the last place, place that families and patients want to uh, receive palliative care. I mean, 
course, there's times where we connect them with palliative care and there's lots of appropriate steps, but, but when, you know, when things are falling apart and, and they can't get connected or access to community resources and palliative care, and uh, they, they end up in the eMERGE department with long waits and with really busy teams that are, are not designed to do that type of care. So we do our best, but you know, we see that often uh, you know, lots and lots of examples, post-op surgical care, if a patient has an operation and then, uh, you know, can't get access to their, their surgeon for days, weeks, or can't get after hours advice, they end up in the emergency department, DI testing, so diagnostic imaging, radiology, people have issues and, you know, they may be months to get access to MRI or to get specialized testing. and. They often end up getting directed to the emergency department uh, because their condition is getting worse and they need more, they need help and they need things sped up. Um, nobody's disease is static, so over time things change. And a lot of times, like I said, that where the safety net, where if, okay, that's not working, your access isn't, you aren't able to access what you need, you end up in the department. Another really kind of, uh, you know, may, may not be intuitive is long-term care. Long-term care and home care uh, we see more and more and more where the system isn't working and isn't isn't uh, working for the patients and their families because, for example, if someone is in in a scenario where they can't, you know, they're elderly and frail, and they're uh, they've gotten to a point where they maybe can't live independently at home at home on their own, and, and maybe have used up their family resources if they have them or if they don't, and they need home care resources to be safely at home or ultimately to come into hospital and their condition deteriorates to the point where, you know, unfortunately it happens where people lived independent but got ill and then get to a point where they can't go back independent living and, and that access to long-term care and to robust long-term care is often a massive bottleneck that ends up happening on the outwards part of the hospital. So the patients are admitted in the hospital but can't get out into long-term care uh, and and so we see that again and again and more and more and then um, what ends up happening is that that's something you'll hear about now a lot in the news and you're going to see more and more of is that this idea of um, admitted inpatients that are patients that need to be admitted into the hospital that end up staying for hours and days and sometimes weeks in a busy emergency department because they can't get admitted to uh, a floor like I could just give you the most easiest example is uh, someone falls down and breaks their hip and the hospital that they present to we can see them after you know a significant amount of time and uh, getting them in and we can treat you know diagnose their broken hip treat their pain but then they can remain for days in the emergency department because there are no beds for them to go up into the hospital it's also you know very routine now because we're so stretched that maybe the next bed after days in the eMERGE is they go to a hallway up in our hospitals. So that's the kind of access block we're discussing. And, and there's multiple pieces to it, but we just keep seeing it. All of the pieces that are, are falling apart are difficult. That's what we see in the emergency departments. And, um, you know, I, I think the one thing why I'm talking about this and why it's important too is that until people access the system, uh, they don't necessarily know how bad it is. So until you need it, you don't know what your experience is going to be like. Or until your loved ones need it, you don't know what your experience is going to be like. And unfortunately, we're getting into a, a period of time now where, uh, honestly, the eMERGE as the safety net of the system and as the canary in the coal mine that's telling how the system's functioning, 
you know, if you ask my colleagues across the province, many would actually say the canary's dead. It's it's not having difficult breathing. It's not giving warning signs. It's keeled over and died. And the canary has said the system is not working and things are very dangerous. And and so examples I can give you now what's happening in our, our departments are, for example, there will be days where there are in the bigger departments, in the bigger cities, say they routinely would have about 50 to 60 care spaces that they would take care of sick patients. Um, I'll just pick an example. I'm not picking on one, but say the Foothills Emergency Department will have 55 spaces. There could be any given day now that uh, 30 to 40 of those spaces are occupied by admitted inpatients. So very sick patients that we've diagnosed, treated, and should be up in the hospital somewhere getting getting dedicated care by dedicated services, but can't go up there because there's no space in the hospitals. And that's the whole piece of access block and right patient in the right place at the right time, because those 40 care spaces that would normally be used to take care of other sick, ill, new emergency patients, those patients can't come into the emergency department. And so then you have a, you have a view of midday in one of these, any of the emergency departments where say, you know, two thirds of the department is filled with admitted patients that need care and need to be in the hospital. 10, 12, 15 ambulance crews in the hallways lined up waiting to offload into the eMERGE department. And why is that important? Why? Let me just simplify that. If the eMERGE ambulance is sitting in the eMERGE department, if the community ambulance is sitting in the eMERGE department for hours to offload a sick patient into the emergency department, then they're not available for new calls in the in the in the community. So that's another example of access block where new sick people who call 911 are daily experiencing prolonged delays or absences of, of response because ambulance crews can't get out um, into the community and can't get out can't get their sick patient offloaded and get back out. And of course why am I talking this now too? Because everyone listening to me I'm sure they're saying, well why aren't the crazy, you know, why are the emerge docs don't why doesn't the team just offload the patients and let them get back out there? And, and, and that's the picture we're telling you. Is there is nowhere for us to actually put them. There are no care spaces. There's nowhere where we, you know, you, we've added, we've added non-traditional spaces of hallways and we're doing everything we can, but it becomes, you know, so say two thirds of the department has admitted patients in it. If 10, call it 10 ambulances waiting to offload and 40 or 50 patients in the waiting room. We get to a period where all we can do is take that next sickest patient when one bed becomes available and put that patient in. And that's the access block we're talking about. And there's any example, you talk heart attacks, strokes, broken bones, you know, now now we're, we're, we're talking about this again because we're experiencing where, you know, patients may wait um, five, six, 10 hours in the waiting room just to get any care, to get any pain treatment, to get a diagnosis, to get some reassurance. And, and, and I should tell everybody right now that none of us want this. None of us are go every day when we go into our, our shift at work. That's not what, not with the nurses, not with the respiratory therapists, allied healthcare workers, physicians. None of us want to make people wait and none of us, we know that this is suboptimal. We know we need help. Um, and when you get into our system, I think you get some of the best care in the world. It's that it's that that getting into the system piece now is becoming more and more difficult. And so what what we're seeing now is maybe 
you know, I mean, in the intro, we talked about that uh, I had to be quite involved and a lot of my colleagues and a lot of us were involved in the late 2000s where things were really, really bad. Well, unfortunately now, you know, on a daily basis, my colleagues across the province are telling me, Paul, I think it's as bad or maybe even worse than it was in the late 2000s in regards to access, in regards to how unsafe and overcrowded the emergency departments are. And, and I keep saying emerge, but I just want everyone to hear that means the whole hospital, the whole system, that means access to family care, that means every piece, but we're just the ones that we, we, we can't shut our doors. We can't say no, we have to take the next sick patients and that's what we're there for. Um, it's as bad as it's ever been. And, and so that, that begs the question of what's changed, like what's different? Uh, why are we talking about this more and more now? And I can tell you that there's lots of pieces, but some of the big, broad ones are, uh, you know, after two years of the pandemic, there's no question that I, I want to make it clear that we're not having these difficulties because the hospitals are overflowing with COVID patients. We do have those and we do have isolation issues and we do have challenges because of COVID. But all of the things I'm talking about are COVID patients plus very sick patients like strokes, heart attacks, can't patients with cancer, you name every type of thing you might need a hospital, that's what we're struggling with. And, and, and so, but two years of the pandemic, it's worn us out. Morale is very low. Our staffing vacancy rates for healthcare workers and physicians are, are the, the vacancy rates are the highest they've ever been. Alberta Health Service will admit that. We, we can't fill full lines. You'll find, we'll find often even in these busy drowning emergency departments that I described, there'll be times when there will be some beds in the emergency department that we can't even use because we don't have enough nurses on a given ship. So one thing I wanna stress really, really, you know, and I'll come back to it, but stress again is there's a big difference between what on paper is capa the capacity of a hospital and what the functional capacity of a hospital is. And functional capacity means you might have a stretcher or a care space, but if you don't have people and human beings and trained people to operate them, then you don't have a functional care space. I'll give you a big example across the province. Tons of surgeries are being postponed or delayed or uh, having significant impact because there aren't enough anesthetists. There aren't enough uh, surgical assistants. There aren't enough people to operate those hospitals, uh, those operating rooms. And so. If you don't have people, you might have an OR. You might have an area where operations could technically be done, but you don't have the functional capacity. And we're struggling with that in our in our emerge departments because uh, of uh, definitely leftover from the pandemic. But in addition to that, and I should tell everybody, I, I, when I when I advocate about healthcare, I'm not picking on one political party because whenever there is a government in power, they're the ones that make the decisions and policies around healthcare. And the policies that have happened in the last couple of years have devastated healthcare, devastated the workforce. The, the government walked in and tore up a contract with all the physicians. They, they keep telling people that physicians haven't left because of it, but absolutely that's not true. And all the numbers are starting to show that there's been a huge deficit of, A, new physicians are not coming to this province. They're not ready to come into a province where the government has no contract, acts unilaterally and disrespects and doesn't value physicians, so they're not coming. And so many have left, and that'll take a year or two of a lag to see what that looks like, but we're seeing it now. Um, so that, that loss of the contract and the way the government treated physicians was massive. But then in addition, 
you know, they've done the same to all healthcare workers. Like if you look around right now, they, we just came out of two years of a pandemic where our respiratory therapists worked uh, double time. Those are the people, respiratory therapists are the, are the people that will help you with your breathing. So they'll help you with your medicines, put you on ventilators. That's what COVID was for the last two years. Those people worked so hard. And what's the government starting position with them when they're talking to the contract is that you're overvalued, you need a 10% pay cut, and and you guys are overpaid. And that's how the government is treating the healthcare workers right now. So, and again, it's this government because they're in power and they're the ones doing the negotiations. I'd say the same if it was another government doing it, but it's been a devastating blow and, and, and nobody, you know, so our workforce is so depleted. Uh, and, and then on top of it, uh, a lot of the unilateral changes that they made that have really impacted care throughout the system like for example they made a lot of changes around how primary care works so they they really impacted how primary care works in smaller communities um, how access to for example they put a 50 encounter cap on doctors so that doctors running their office in the smaller areas now no longer can work in the evening to do after hours care or that because of the caps the government just unilaterally put in place and and when i say unilaterally everybody has to understand when they tore up our contract they didn't speak to us for two years as a profession they did everything that they thought they would implement and do and never got frontline input and so they changed how primary care access so now we have that you know hundreds of thousands of uh, albertans out there i'm not this is not an exaggeration hundreds of thousands of Albertans don't have a primary care physician or any access. A simple example would be in Lethbridge. We have we know that the number is probably 50,000 that don't have access to it. And now there's no after hours. So my colleagues in Lethbridge, their emergency departments are overwhelmed with sick, sick patients plus patients that just have no primary care. So you know, there's lots and lots of pieces that have that have been added up. Another piece that's happened now is that. The government made a lot of changes around after-hours care and around hospital-based care where they kind of unilaterally made some decisions about how they were going to charge overhead for doctors that work in the, ho uh, in the hospital, despite the fact that those doctors, the vast majority of them, have clinics and overhead and have to run their offices even when they're in the hospital. Uh, they, that kind of amounted to a double charge for those physicians that would do the hard, difficult care in the hospitals. So over a couple of years, it's chased it's, it's made a lot of doctors decide that, you know what, I don't want to do the difficult, very, very difficult, hard 2 a.m. hospital care. I'll just run my office. I'll work and see and do very important value-added health care, but I'll do that in, in, uh, in my office and no longer participate in the acute care system. So there are tons of things that have added and added to um, cause a situation where our access block is... Is, is as bad as it's ever ever been and now you're going to see in in you know we're going to have to advocate and you're going to see we're going to have to put human face to what i just said about all that thing all those what access block we're going to have to put it doesn't mean anything to anybody if they hear that you know every emerged department in the province in the province has 75 percent admitted inpatients and wait times are on average six hours that doesn't mean anything but it does mean something when you say you know, recently I heard of a 91-year-old that had to wait, you know, fell and had to wait like 12 hours to get stitches. 12 hours in a waiting room is like, it's insane and, and you know, inhumane for any human being. And had a frail 91-year-old, then, then, you know, that patient would be so decompensated that they might even need to be admitted after it because of the weight. It's that kind of thing we're talking about. 
we really are going to have to stress to put a human face um, to to make patient to make Albertans aware of what's going on in our province and uh, and aware of why uh, you know why the eMERGE departments are having really really struggling and why that's a symptom of why the entire hospital system is struggling and why access block is becoming a very 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 challenging kind of uh, state for our system right now and so all that is kind of I, I think I'm getting close to the timing in here so I I want to I don't want to be as negative in the sense of I want to what are some solutions so what are some things and what are some you know that all sounds bad and I'll tell you I'll tell you from a frontline perspective our nurses as an example they're worn out and their morale is zero they've been working double time they've been working short shifted for two years they're worn out and this access block is just challenging all of our allied healthcare workers and so a couple things we desperately need is we need transparency so we need we need the government to be frank and honest about what's happening in our systems we don't need every day that they go out there now and say yeah you know our bed capacity is the same as it was pre-pandemic there's no ch troubles when everybody in every of the hospitals including the hs leaders are saying no no our functional capacity is stressed as it as it have ever been so we need to have very transparent and fair discussions about what's happening because when people access our hospitals now they are often shocked that they're going to be in for a 10-hour wait and that their loved one's going to go in a hallway um you know that routine kind of care up in the hospital of like um, you know bathing and certain things that would have been routine when we weren't so stressed gets delayed and put off for days like lots and lots of things like that that the public needs to be aware of it and then we need as the public needs to be aware of it we we desperately need albertans to to start to share their stories too but also to to start to talk to their government and and let them know that uh you know that you know timely access to life-saving health care is a priority for us all and that we we um you know we need to start to make make the government aware of what what the struggles are and and how how difficult it is and, and when i say we it's it's you know they for two two years they haven't listened to the profession and now they're starting to come back to talk to us in the ama and start to talk to some of us on the front lines but but in reality the people the only people the government's going to listen to are albertans and the people who are voting and and i'll tell you that it now's the time that we need everybody to kind of realize and look around and say hey you know what if you're if you're one of the you know, fifty thousand in Lethbridge without a family doc. I'd really be strongly telling you, 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 you should be letting your MLAs and letting the government know how how critical that is to you. And if you've gone through the hospital with loved ones or yourself and have had difficult experiences and you know suboptimal treatments because of really significant delays and or waits or postponements of surgeries, we we need we need you to start talking to the government and letting them know. And, and we need to kind of add so that that, that transparency is there so they can't kind of, um, you know, make it make, downplay how, how difficult and how, how troubling the system is right now. And, and, and I think it'll make a difference. It made a difference before the last time we did this, once we, 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 added, we added national and international benchmarks, the government committed to it, and, um, and we improved the system. We made massive gains. It was a team, team, team effort. and. Uh, um, you know, but but the government was responsive and actually valued and said, "Listen, this is a priority for us." And so, you know, I, I know I'm nearing the end of this because there's lots of other components that that we could talk about. But one of the things we have to be really careful about now is that the the acute care system is struggling so 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 much right now, 
and a lot of the initiatives that the government are putting in right now where they're offloading, so the Alberta Surgical Initiative and a bunch of initiatives where they're trying to get care out into the community and into private offices and for-profit offices. I'll just tell you, I'll leave with a note saying that, you know, if they don't do that with guardrails that, that make sure that the, the, the public hospital system is robust and taken care of as the, as the safety net for everybody, if they don't make that, that acute care system robust and working before they, they start to offload um, into the private and, uh, and community, uh, we're, we're going to find ourselves where we'll have no, you know, we'll have back next to no physicians working in the hospitals after hours, we'll be desperate for anesthetists, we'll be desperate for really good uh, nurses because they'll all left the, the, the acute care system and the hospitals to go work the Monday to Friday, you know, nine to five uh, clinics, and I and I can't blame them if, if that if that's allowed to happen. It, it makes sense that they would make that lifestyle choice, and that they would go. And I'm not saying that they wouldn't provide a service, and I'm not saying that they wouldn't take care of whatever people can be in that stream. I'm just saying that the the public system would very likely collapse very quickly behind it, uh, and the the acute care system would collapse behind it. So, you know, I think just. I uh, just echo the system's in trouble. Access block is on like many, many, many fronts, um, and we're seeing it more. But the biggest pieces we're seeing now is access to primary care is, is critical. Uh, access to after-hours care um, to be able to get access to specialists and any type of after-hours care is 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 critical. It's coming to the point where it's pretty much only into the emergency departments that you can get that access, and then. And then, um, you know, just our workforce and our healthcare workers and physicians and our, our we're going to take years and years to recover in our workforce. So it's at a critical point too. So, you know, that's a that's a <laughs> 20 year career talk in, in 30 odd minutes or 25 minutes. So it's a big topic, but I think it's important that we start talking about it as Albertans because the system is, is in trouble. And when I say the system's in trouble, it means Albertans are, that need healthcare are going to, are going to, maybe suffer because of it. Thank you so much. Um, well, that's quite a sobering talk, I must say. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm going to jump right into the questions here in the queue. Uh, Mark Goddell, with the lack of family doctors, I understand that part of the problem is people using Emerge as a drop-in clinic. Would a drop-in center at the hospital not alleviate such minor visits, such as prescription renewals, et cetera? Well, yeah, so it's complex. That's a complex thing. So one of the things that having done this for more than 20 years too is you don't, I don't want to get into the game of whether we're, you know, a lot of patients, things that can see, seem simple, uh, the patients, you know, may think it's minor like just a blood pressure refill but in reality they have very significant chest pain and they need to be in the emerge so uh, uh, so it's it's difficult to say yeah it's very clear that there's a X percentage of people that don't need to be in the emerge and that's causing the problem no that 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 is not the case but but uh, I would strongly say a hundred percent if we had a medical home for every Albertan and we had a place where they could get primary care and preventative care um, as a baseline without any difficulty, uh, absolutely that would that would free up uh, um, some capacity and space. But more importantly than anything there is, is 
that would help turn a sickness system into a wellness system where we keep people healthy so they don't need to come see me. Um, but, but, but also not to skirt the question, no question, lots and lots of communities now don't have any after hours or drop-in access um, as well. So even if they, uh, you know, so, so as an example, uh, some family practices are so busy that the next available appointment is three or four weeks. If that's the case, if you don't have urgent access to some type of urgent care um, option in your community, then yeah, you end up having to go to the emergency department. Um, so it's very complex and difficult. And the long answer, but the one thing I wanna just not anybody miss there, when I'm talking about access block and the troubles we're having in the eMERGE department, it's a bit ironic that when the department is drowning and I'm having a hard time seeing the chest pains and the, and the stroke patients and the ambulance patients because they, I can't get them in the room, often I can still go out and refill those prescriptions and help some of the easy things. So it's not, it's not the easy, simple stuff that's overflowing and overcrowding our eMERGE department. So, so yes, having a, I just want to say, having a primary care physician in a medical home is desperately needed, 100%, no question. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Access seems to be blocked at FPs, earlier retirement, younger ones leaving Alberta and limits on daily encounters means no evening clinics and subsequent overflow of ERs. Loss, 180 FPs, 2021. Comments, please. Uh, 100%. We have the, the the changes in the climate and what's happened, I've never, I've never seen, most of my colleagues say we can't, we haven't seen what's happened in a province, like what's happened in the last two and a half years. Uh, with, uh, you know, it, it can't be stressed enough, the government just tearing up the contract. We have no arbitration, we have no mechanism to, you, you know, we can't strike, not that we want to, we can't do anything. We're beholden to the government, they just do whatever they want and they made a lot of changes that really impacted family care in, in a bad negative way and family care tried to say listen this is bad don't do this and they didn't listen and and i'm not the, i'm not the right person to speak to all the nuts and bolts and ins and out, uh, outs of the issues of that because that's not my specialty but 100 percent, we are losing we have lost many great great family physicians that were generalists that were full practice that were uh, you know, working in rural communities, often by themselves, they may have retired early. Many have left to other provinces that are actively recruiting them and saying, you know, listen, we value your expertise. Uh, and one of the problems now that we're we're seeing in in the line with your question is, like in Lethbridge, as an example, AHS is scrambling so bad that they have to invest sixty, seventy thousand uh, dollars a physician for uh, to try to recruit and get foreign trained physicians over here to try to fill the gap that the government created when they uh, you know, made changes that chased them away. And, and I'm not criticizing whether the, fa the foreign trained docs are, are good or bad or, or will fill the gap. I'm, I'm just saying that that's insane to lose the good resources that we had, that we trained, that we were in the communities, chase them away and then, and then scramble and spend tons and tons of money to get new, new ones in. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's not, it's not a, a strategy that anybody would suggest would be you know reasonable and unfortunately that's where we're at so no question just physical bodies for physicians and for nurses is a massive challenge that's going to challenge our province for years 
Um, the second question by Ian Hurdle. Canada now has one of the lowest hospital bed ratios to population in OECD countries. So even if there were more beds, staffing would be even worse. What are your yeah. co comments on that? Like that's one of the issues we're struggling with now is that, you know, there are, even when the hospital's at 130% capacity, we have some wards where we're not using every bed right now because we don't have enough staff. We're trying to fix that, trying to create that. Um, but yes, it's it's a two-pronged thing. If we don't have nurses, if we don't have nurses' aides, if we don't have respiratory therapists, every, every part of that, it's not just physicians, of course, like it's a big team. Uh, if we don't have them, if we don't have physical bodies and human resources and people to do the caring, then there is no health care. It's just, you know, so that's one struggle. Two, though, is the bed, the bed base is an issue. The bed base for long-term care and getting patients out to there is a massive issue. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have the stat in front of me, but I just saw, I think we're just in for a tsunami of, of elderly patients in Canada now, too, where there's going to be a huge percentage, one third of the population over X, whatever the number is, 70. I don't know what it is anymore. But the whole point is people are living longer with complex diseases and we're not going to be able to function with the lowest number of acute care beds and long term care beds. It, it's, it's going to just keep on bottlenecking and causing, uh, uh, you know, access block to get worse and 100% and staffing 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 and physical beds and appropriate beds for the right patients and you know i'll give you an example that's really really tough is we just went through two years of the pandemic and one of the most critical phases in the fourth wave is we didn't have a, uh we were stressing our icu capacity to to the beyond max unfortunately the government i'm not sure what advice they got but they decided they needed to get us a whole bunch more icu beds when in reality we actually have a fairly good bed base for icu across the province for normal operating times and then if you go and search that up, we're going to have lots of really skilled critical care nurses to work in ICU beds that may not ever be full. And we don't necessarily have them to work in the emergency departments or on the hospital floors. So we desperately need the policymakers to start listening to the frontline experts as to what the system needs. And that's been missing for the last two and a half years. Next question. Um, how does one tell a fascist to stop being a fascist? This is a government that has consistently gone out of their way to disrespect experts. What are your comments on that? I think, you know, I, well, I, my personal is truth. So you, you've got you to gotta get the truth out there as my personal. I, uh, and that's why I think transparency and, and letting everybody know what we're facing and what's happening and patients telling their stories uh, getting that out is going to help. Uh, but again, that's why I said in my talk that I'm pleading to Albertans is that, uh, you know, I'm trying to formulate uh, relationships with the government and I'm trying to get them to listen so we can tell them the truth. But, you know, and, and hopefully that'll turn around. But if not, the, the government is beholden to the public and the, and the public has to, the voters have to, have to, you know, express their, their concerns. And I'll, I'll just give you a really example. I, I was on the, you know, as the president of emergency medicine for the whole province, and 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 we just had a once in a century pandemic, and it was over two years before the government invited me to the table to talk to Dr. Hinshaw and the Minister of Health to ask for the emerged perspective on what we should do in the pandemic. Uh, that's how broken our 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 relationship has been with this government. It's insane. I, I mean, despite 
you know, myself or any of my other Emerge colleagues and experts begging to please talk to them and discuss, um, and the AMA trying to do it as well, it, that, that's how broken it was. So I think the first step is we all got to speak truth to power. And that's, that's, that's one of the challenges we have too. They, they changed our, our college. They threatened physicians, you know, they got this government's actively tried to bully and muzzle physicians. And so I'm, I'm just, that's why I'm at talks like this. That's why I'm trying to talk to people and say, uh, I think it's part of my duty to advocate for my patients and for the system. So not just my patients, the system, right? So. Our next question comes from Beth uh, Mundell. Are medical doctors and nurses who have so bravely worked these last two years now thinking of leaving Alberta? Well, uh, many have. <laughs> so, hmm. unfortunately, yes, many have. Like, uh, many have, many have retired, many have switched from difficult, very difficult, high acuity, critical kind of care to do other types of care so that they you know, can uh, ease the stress that they've been under. So yes, like we've been seeing that again and again and again. And, uh, um, you know, and I can't, I, that, that's one of the pieces that I can't say again is like a strong enough is that if you don't value your human resources and if you don't start with a position of saying like, you know, that we really truly value your expertise, your skills and, and, and you doing the job you're doing then, then if they don't feel valued and their morale and their stress and everything on top of it, and then and then a starting position is, you know, like honestly, if you look at the starting positions of negotiations with uh, with social workers, with respiratory therapists, with nurses, it's like, it, it, and and sure, there's some politics to it in negotiating, but but that's just an example of the attitude of how we've been treated by this government. And when I say we, it's mostly the allied healthcare professionals and. And of course, physicians, they just haven't even talked to us. So yeah, lots and lots, and I know tons, and I'm hearing more and more are leaving. And, and, and you know, I'll just give a really good example. Our, our, our you know, brothers and sisters to the West and BC, they're desperate for family physicians. They're desperate for healthcare workers and nurses. And they're trying to encourage us to come over there with open arms. They're recruiting us. They're like, come, we'll, we have a stable contract. We have this, we have that, we want you. We respect who we value. People are going to leave and go to that, you know. So that that's what we're faced with right now. Um, and 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 I'll tell you, AHS, ask AHS. Our our AHS leads have been very open and frank, saying that the you know our staffing levels across the province are are historically the worst they've ever been for allied healthcare workers. So we're in for trouble. Where it's going to be difficult. My next question comes from Leona Jacobs. What is the estimated cost of after our drop-in versus the estimated cost of an emergency visit? Also, same, also same question, but a primary care visit versus an emergency visit, really? Well, so that that's kind of complex in that Emerge. So Emerge has a whole bunch of fixed costs and overhead and a whole bunch of costs. So it's, it's definitely more expensive overall for care to be done in the hospital that doesn't need to be done in the hospital. So that, that like, if, if, if they could see a family physician in the community and that was appropriate, it's definitely more expensive to come into the hospital. You have more uh, fixed costs because of just registration, just everything. Uh, but that being said, you know, it, it, it becomes where there's this kind of diminishing returns where if, if you have a, a you know, like a, a, a urgent care center or an after hours clinic that's working very well and efficiently and can keep numbers through, then 
then there becomes a point where they can see people more efficiently and more cost effective because they're, they're kind of designed to do that. But all that being said is that um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's as much as, it wouldn't be, a, you know, the comparable of cost of me seeing someone with a blood pressure and needing a blood pressure pill and in the emergence, someone seeing it at their family dog, it, it, they're, they're similar. The bigger issue is, is that usually by the time they come see me, uh, it's been so long and or they haven't had, you know, really tight control of all the issues they need that their disease is a lot worse and the cost to society is massive because of that. So, you know, because now maybe they're having, obviously, there's like having heart attacks and strokes because their blood pressure wasn't managed for a long time or their diabetes wasn't or whatever. But, but, but it, you know, and more and more and more we're seeing, for example, after this two years in the pandemic, lots of delayed diagnosis of, of like cancers. And so it's very obvious. Everybody knows this is not debatable if we can, you know, detect something before it becomes a cancer and treat it or, or treat it really early. Uh, before it spreads to the rest of the body, that there's life-saving and massive cost savings to that. And so preventative medicine is always going to be cheaper. Uh, uh, and, and that being said, you're always going to need to come have emerge departments for when you have a motor vehicle collision, when you fall off the roof, when you have a heart attack. There are acute things you can't predict and you need us, um, but preventative care is always going to be cheaper and better in the long run. Uh, next question is from Bridge City News. Here in Lethbridge, there's only one clinic accepting new patients, and then in brackets, the opioid dependency clinic. And a ton of people are going to the emergency department to seek a doctor. You mentioned reaching out to local MLAs to see what they can do to fix the problem. How confident are you that this will work and what else can be done? And then in brackets, Lethbridge bringing in sponsored doctors? Yeah, I mean, so, and just to be clear, Lethbridge is probably like, uh, you know, the, one of the worst scenarios for family physicians, but it's similar in a lot of communities. Even in Medicine Hat now, we're starting to see where, you know, when patients come in without a doctor, uh, I think there's maybe one in the community, and I'm pretty sure he, that physician's full. So we don't have doctors that are accepting new patients anymore either. So, you know, that's just an example that's happening in lots of communities. Your community in Lethbridge, very big challenge, 100%. And so a good example, like I said, is some of the unilateral changes the government made. I know that the busy, my colleagues that are in primary care that are super busy and already have super full panels that stayed in Lethbridge and are working there, a, they're just too busy to be able to take new patients. B, the changes made it so that they can't, that, you know, there's no there's no incentive or even, you know, financial. They don't get paid, basically, to work after hours and take care of unattached patients. Say, if they work their clinic all week and work evenings to take care of unattached patients. So those changes by government totally impacted that that ability to access. And then, and then from an eMERGE perspective, I can tell you that my colleagues in Emerge in Lethbridge will do their best to help people that come in, um, even despite knowing that the Emerge isn't the best place to do primary care. They'll do the best that they, they can, but those patients will often come in with complaints that aren't as urgent or emergent, so they'll wait long times. Their waits will be hours and hours. Um, and, then, and then the other piece that needs to be highlighted is that they then will be discharged out of the Emerge department with no family physician to check up on them. With nobody to see you, you know, a simple example: you come in to see me because your blood pressure's high, and I start you on a blood pressure med. 
you need to see a doctor again to see how that medicine's working. Does it need to be titrated up, down? Do you need to do other things? Um, and so that's a challenge in Lethbridge, as an example, is that they can diagnose serious things that need continuity of care and need a family physician, and they know they don't feel good about discharging that person back to the current community and not being able to connect them to primary care. So it's a massive issue. And so then how do you correct it? Two things, piece, one piece, uh, you know, it, it baffles my mind that, that the government and, you know, the Minister of Health and the Premier aren't held to come down to Lethbridge and come see what, what actually is, it looks like when there are no family doctors. Like 50,000 people without a family doctor, that's, that's important. Like, you know, so in that number, are there lots of healthy 20-odd-year-olds who don't need a doc and don't know they need one till they need one? Sure, but I'm certain there's a large percentage of patients in that group that desperately want a family doc and, and are suffering or having difficulties because they don't want one. So back to transparency, the news, like yourself, patients, people, they need to be talking about this, they need to be advocating about it, and they need to be pushing the government and saying, what's your solution? What are you going to do? And then they need to be holding government account too, is that, is it really wise to chase away all the docs we had, do unilateral changes, do these things, and then have to throw lots and lots of money to recruit doctors into that area when you don't necessarily know if they'll stay? Uh, they may, you know, and, and they may come for two years and then leave after their two years are done if they're um, foreign physicians that need to come in on a return of service, you know. so. The whole point is, I'm not saying being critical that that won't work, it, it will help, but is that really the the way we want to do it, is like blow up the system and then try to patchwork, uh, you know, fix it fix it after the damage is done. So, so again, you need to talk to my primary colleagues, like my primary care colleagues uh, routinely about this, but Emerge will happily talk to you too because we're, we, we will be the first to say we can't do primary care and preventative care in the emergency departments. Um, and we desperately need that that component, and we need um, Albertans to fight for it, and we need the press to talk about it, and we need uh, the communities to to engage and, and advocate for it because that that's ultimately what the government's job is. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz: Is the government, and in brackets AHS, applying the lean method, i.e., timing the interactions between a healthcare worker and patient slash client? contributing to the deterioration of acute and primary health care? Uh, well, I don't know. So one thing that people don't uh, know necessarily intuitively about our system, so Alberta Health is the government that sets policy and Alberta Health Services is the operational arm. That's a one body throughout the province that delivers the services. And one of the problems that we've had more and more and more now that I can speak to is that AHS is no longer really arm's length from Alberta Health. It's just purely, uh, you know, it gets marching orders and it goes out and marches and tries to do them. And there's been a disconnect at high levels of, of AHS necessarily coming back to the government and saying, you know, this, this thing you want to do will, will cost us more, will cost more money and will impact care and will be bad. Um, that, that chain and that, that kind of arm's length and feedback is broken, uh, absolutely broken. And so, uh, you know, and as a prime example, AH firing AHS's CEO, Dr. Yu, is a perfect example of how broken that is because Dr. Yu was, you know, at the hot, at the top who knew what was going on in the operational arm of, of healthcare and was very much trying to tell government some things that maybe they didn't want to hear. 
and now she's gone a year a year early with no replacement because uh, uh, I'm not I'm not too certain that the government wants to hear uh, from the expertise as to what should be done. So I, I can't sp speak exactly to the lean components and drivers, uh, but but I can tell you that the disconnect of having the operational arm not be somewhat arm, arm's length from the policy making has been very, very challenging and problematic for our system, uh, 100%. Our next question actually uh, touches a little bit on what you just said, but I'm going to read it anyway. Um, Belinda Croson, I've spoken with several AHS workers from many different fields, and they feel angry and abundant by the firing of Dr. Yu. Do you think the loss of her leadership will exasperate the issues? Uh, personally, 100%, I think it will. I think that uh, we, so again, I, I said through my talk, one of the solutions is transparency and truth and, and, and saying what the system is like and being honest and frank with Albertans of what it's like. And, and I think Dr. Yu really understood the system and I, I'm certain she understood what two really, really, really hard years, I, that's a lot of hard, really, it's like two really bad years of the pandemic what it did to our system and how much it challenged it and what, what added stressors it added, it added to our system. Um, and, and then in addition to what the policy changes and the things that happened over those two years. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm having communicated with her, worked with her, and I, I'm positive that she was uh, you know, knowledgeable and aware of what, what some of those big challenges were. And now to have her gone without you know, really a, a replacement midterm as we're as we're coming out of difficult pandemic and really challenging access block is 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 definitely very bad and in addition it's going to be very difficult for the system but it also signals uh i would think that it signals the government wants somebody that's going to tell them what they want to hear as opposed to what is uh what they need to hear uh, or what the actual objective situation is as opposed to just saying yes yes sir we'll, yes sir we'll just do that and and not feeding them difficult the the, the problems that they would anticipate the, with the policies that they're making. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. The first match for training this year's family physicians did not fill 32 spots in Edmonton. Does that mean Alberta is not attracting or attractive to Canadian grads? I think it speaks for itself, uh, but yes, and I would tell you that uh, Right now, so I do a lot of teaching. I interact with a lot of residents, and and I'll tell you that the uncertainty of how this province's government and policymakers are treating physicians is really a major impact on learners. Nobody, nobody is going to want to spend the years and the hard work and the training that that you know we have to do to go through to become physicians um, to enter in an environment where. Um, in the simplest terms, I'll be really blunt, where your input and, and opinion as to your work environment is completely uh, disregarded and there is no ability for you to give that input. And so your your actual professional body, the AMA, is, doesn't even have a relationship or a contract. So your input's not wanted and there's no way to give it. So you have no control over your environment. Um, you have no ability to in any way arbitrate that if what you're seeing is difficult or challenging. You also have uh, college that's been under attack, so that you are not we're not self-regulated, and they're actively trying to muzzle. Um, you know, the government wants college and uh, wants to muzzle physicians who are advocates, 
uh, and who are trying to advocate for the system and the patient and the patient. So it, it, there's no question talking to grads and physicians and you know early physicians and students and people that are out there trying to choose where they want to land. This this province is too tumultuous right now, and and it's and it's it's not. And so you know, and I can simplify it even more because I'm not I'm not an expert in the higher education in 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 regards to PGME and postgraduate medical education. You know, we should be hearing from them too. But I can tell you that the training hasn't changed. So the the residency positions are not like it's not like there's poor teachers or you're not going to get a good experience. The training and the work environment of how of learning has not changed. The environment of where you're going to work and 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 what your workplace uh, control and input's going to be like has massively changed. Our next question comes from Mark Gerald. Could you say a little something about what is happening in the rural hospitals and their ability to accommodate and treat their patients? So same 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 thing. Everything kind of trickles down as a scale, but the same issues is that you have to think too that. You know, in the smaller, smaller hospitals, so they have less resources, um, obviously, and, and, and so they have their own unique challenges. But as they struggle with staffing and as they struggle, struggle with, you know, real worn out, worn out uh, teams and, and uh, uh, you know, just personnel struggles and all those things, that becomes amplified even more. So if you're working in a hospital that, you know, where the wards were, you know, maybe in the in the foothills, there's there's 12 nurses, and then Medicine Hat, there's eight or six, and then in a smaller, really small t- uh, hospital, there might be two or three in the in the ward. Losing one of those staff members on any given shift is obviously a much bigger impact and much more difficult. So, uh, so they're struggling with that with their teams, and then of course they're absolutely struggling with just you know retaining, recruiting, and retaining full generalists that will do full service, uh, you know, the entire spectrum of primary care and working in the hospital, that's a very difficult job. And if it's not valued and if it's not supported, uh, you'll have you, you'll have a very hard time getting anybody to, uh, you know, enticing people to go into those positions. And I can also tell you that it's also very, very challenging to have a few bringing in foreign trained doctors who don't know the community, don't know the people, don't know the culture, a lot of those things, that just adds another challenge to it as well in those small communities. So uh, I, I'm not saying that it doesn't work to bring in uh, you know, foreign trained uh, grads, I'm just saying that it's, uh, it's a challenge on both sides. So uh, yeah, r- rural is, a lot of the changes that happened in the last couple of years have, have have had a really um, disproportionate effect on the rural care positions, so they're, they're really struggling. So of course, in Medicine Hat is a good example, is we get fed from a lot of the rural, smaller areas, and so we're routinely seeing now, you know, no coverage in the hospitals, um, you know, family, no coverage for family physicians, family physicians having to send patients up to us because they can't admit them into their hospital because of staffing challenges. Like, that, that's a daily occurrence, and that's part of the access block I'm talking about. Um, it, it's that system-wide exact problem, and we're all struggling with it to varying degrees. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. The UCP has been upfront on their goal to privatize healthcare. Are the UCP policies, policy decisions and actions merely a strategy to burn the public system out and start building a private system? Well, I, I mean, I, there's the worry of that. The, the system is burning out and it is in trouble. And I, 
but you know, I would think that uh, we have to be again. I fall back to the only places where private and public have worked maybe to a degree and you could look at it in some of the places like the United Kingdom Australia a little bit there's there's lots of evidence and it's a whole talk in itself um, as to whether you could have a private stream work and have it work with a public stream stream but the only comment I'll make for everybody is that it, in any of the places where it may work and uh, you have to have a robust really well functioning public system and our system is as far as you possibly can get from a robust working public system at this point. And just to simplify it as simple as you can, so maybe there's a long waiting list for knees and shoulders to be operated on. If you just take my community of medicine out as an example, and you you let uh, you say, go ahead and let's have a private clinic open to do operations on knees and shoulders, because they can be done in a, in a day and don't need hospital admissions. Well, what that means then is you lose one of your orthopedic surgeons, leaves the hospital and goes and does that. One of your anesthetists, and a couple of your best uh, best nurses, all-round nurses, leave and go into that private stream, whether it's funded by public funds or by the patient, they still left the stream and left the hospital. And one of the things that I'll strongly say that we all need to be kicking and screaming now is the government is doing this right now without guardrails saying, listen, if you leave and do work in a private clinic or work in a, uh, you know, outside of the, out of the hospital stream, you still need to have privileges in the hospital if your patient has a complication and needs to be admitted. You still need to do some hospital care to take care of all of the complex patients and trauma patients and people that are admitted to the hospital. We need guardrails. I, I, I have my own personal opinions as to what would happen if, you know, if they let the floodgates open. Um, uh, but my professional side right now, 100%, I, I think a personal professional, I think it's not a great idea. But from a professional point of view, I'll tell you, our system without robust, uh, robust public healthcare system, and without guardrails as to what can, what will happen, um, it, you know, rules and regulations and guardrails, uh, which are not in place as the government's implement, implementing this right now, the whole system's going to collapse. You'll have, you'll have uh, a scenario where the, you know, the, the 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 healthiest, easiest cases will be done in the community, and when they have complications, they'll be, you know dump back into the hospital system with nobody to take care of them and and no safety net that's been but that's been kind of set up ahead of time to take care of them and it'll be disastrous and so we have to be very very aware of that and so as is the government actively trying to destroy the public system to set that up i i sure hope not but if that is a concern we should be kicking and screaming i think excellent well thank you um, before we wrap up this session, do you have a take-home message for the viewers today? Uh, yeah, like the biggest, simplest thing I'll say is please get vocal, like transparent and talk about the, uh, you know, talk, talk about if this is important to you, uh, you know, talk to your MLAs, talk to your government, talk to the newspapers, so when you have bad experiences, you know, one thing I, I urge patients when they wait long times and they have a bad, you know, suboptimal outcomes, I say, listen, you know, it's not it's not critical of me if you're upset that you waited 12 hours and and then your loved one had to go in a hallway in the in the hospital when they had to get admitted it's not critical of me in the system because none of us want that we don't we want a system that functions for our patients um, it helps us when you tell those stories to the government when you tell them to the press when you let people know what that experience is like and, and it helps us when you get Kind of vocal and, and demand transparency and, and support us that that's that that's the help that we need and and 
we need pay, you know like I said we need us we need uh, engaged Albertans everywhere to to tell the government they really prioritize publicly funded you know timely health care and a public system because uh, it'll be gone before we know it and then when you get sick and and, and go to access it it won't be there and it'll be too late so so that's why you know just getting vocal and, and having talks like this and and uh, getting active and supporting it before it completely falls apart thank you and i actually want to read out some of the thank yous in the queue uh bridge city news thank you for your presentation i appreciate the information and also your beer at the hell's basement <laughs> especially the fruit bat raspberry ale nice. <laughs> <laughs> ian hurdle you should know even with the contentious issue that the doctors whom you have been preceptor for think uh you Oh, I'm messing that up, sorry. You should know, even with this contentious issue, that the doctors whom you have been preceptor for think you are in, think you are awesome, including one of my children. And, uh, and Lord Schultz, Alberta have, have and approach their MLA's. MLA's response is, is an elevator speech or speaking points. So thank you from Laurie Schultz as well. Um, thank you for your clear presentation for someone who's working in the, in the, in the trenches by Beth Mundell. And the thank yous actually just go on. So people really appreciate it. And on behalf of SACPA, thank you very much. Um, folks out there, I hope you'll join us next week. Dr. Chris Burton, why did Russia invade Ukraine in 2022? the history and contemporary causes of that war or the war. I hope you'll join us for that. And with that, we'll end the live stream.